pick up this morning at verse 9, and we come to a passage that is intended to be a warning for us as God's people. You might wonder what place does warning have in the life of the believer, and the confession of faith tells us that it is by faith that true believers actually tremble before the warnings of God's word. And the one place that we see that so clearly illustrated is in the upper room. When Jesus told the disciples that one of them would betray him, he knew which one would betray him. He knew that one of them would betray them, and yet he gave that warning to them all. And we saw that that warning had its intended effect in the life of those who were true believers, the eleven, not Judas. As the eleven were found asking, Lord, is it I? They gave themselves to self-examination in a way that drew them to Jesus Christ. And may it be that even this passage this morning that comes to us with a warning would be opportunity for us by faith to tremble before the warning of God's word and so draw near to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's give our careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. I'll read through verse 24. This is the word of God. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Amen. This is the word of God. When I was in the third grade, my best friend was playing football in the yard with his older brother. And all of a sudden, my friend fell to the ground in excruciating pain. 
His back was burning with what he described as a mind-numbing pain. His older brother, in fear, ran into the house to find mom and dad, and mom and dad came out and tried to diagnose the situation, and they quickly called 911. My friend was rushed to the ER, where they obviously tried to deal with his pain, but also tried to diagnose his problem. As the various test results came in, the doctor diagnosed my friend with kidney cancer. I have vivid memories of that day in which my, my dad delivered the news to me. My friend's dad had called my own dad to ask us to pray. And so after my dad got off the phone, he called me inside and he said he had something serious to tell me. And so I knew something was up. My dad was straightforward. He said, Stephen has cancer. But I also remember my dad being very careful to explain the situation in a little bit greater detail. He relayed how Stephen's traumatic and painful experience, how it was actually a blessing in disguise. You see, they had caught Stephen's cancer early, which meant his treatment was much more likely to be successful. Well, I watched my friend undergo a surgery to remove one of his kidneys. And then I watched him undergo many rounds of chemotherapy. And this treatment was absolutely devastating to his body. But it was absolutely necessary to kill that cancer. And my friend suffered in that year so much, both physically and emotionally. But in the end, he said it was all worth it. You see, Stephen is alive today. He's married and raising his family up in Denver. Had he never experienced the excruciating pain and trauma of that day in which his cancer was diagnosed, and had he never undergone the difficulty and pain of the treatment for his cancer, that disease would have simply grown. It would have gone undiagnosed and untreated, and my friend would certainly be dead today. When it comes to a deadly disease like cancer, even a painful diagnosis and even an excruciating treatment plan is well worth it when considered against the alternative. Here in our text today, we see a much more deadly disease diagnosed and treated. And while there is much pain and discomfort in both the diagnosis and the initial stage of treatment, a consideration of the alternative quickly reveals that any pain in this regard is absolutely well worth it. Here in our text today, we meet this man named Simon. And at first glance, everything seems so well. This man believes that message preached by Philip. He leaves behind his life of magic, and he is filled with awe when he sees the signs and miracles performed. Then, subtle symptoms begin to reveal that there is actually a serious disease that is infecting him from within. And like a skilled physician, Peter accurately diagnoses Simon's disease, and he quickly prescribes the only appropriate treatment. So why is this text important for all of us? Well, you see, this text is essential for us in that it reveals that one can have 
the appearance of spiritual health on the outside while being destroyed by a destructive spiritual disease from the inside. This text reveals to us that one can make a credible profession of faith while still being ununited to Christ, while still being far from Christ, while still not trusting in Christ. And so it is very good for us to come to God's word today to be examined by his Holy Spirit, lest this spiritual disease go undiagnosed and untreated in any of us. So let's begin that examination. Let's begin first by considering the outward appearance. My friend was the picture of health when he was diagnosed with cancer. He was the tallest kid in our class. He was athletic, active, and always full of energy. And so by all outward appearances, anyone would assume that he was perfectly healthy. And the same thing was true, spiritually speaking, for Simon the Magician. Just consider how he's described here in our text. When we first meet Simon, he is wrapped up in the occult. He practices magic, or more literally, sorcery. And he has found in that sorcery a measure of worldly success. He has found a measure of success, if you will, because everyone paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. He had much worldly success, but then suddenly Philip arrives in Samaria and he brings with him the good news of Jesus Christ and we see something take place in the life of Simon. So what happened to Simon the magician? Well, first of all, our text highlights how he listened to the preaching of the gospel. Even though this man made his living being wrapped up in the occult, he still, for some reason, Listen to this good news about the kingdom of God and of the name of Jesus Christ. Second, the text tells us Simon believed. Just as many other men and women believed, so do did this magician. But then third, we see that he must have given a credible profession of faith because he received baptism. The church was right to listen to Simon's profession of faith and then apply the waters of baptism to him. You see, there, this means that there was nothing incredible. There was nothing unbelievable or out of accord with Simon's profession of faith and his way of life. No doubt Philip and anyone else who was serving with him listened to Simon's profession of faith while also inquiring about his former way of life. Simon, what about your magic? What about your sorcery? Well, seeing no reason why they should withhold the waters of baptism, seeing no reason why they should question his profession of faith and the way that he had now left his magic behind, Simon was appropriately baptized. And finally, our text highlights that Simon actually followed with Philip. He seemed to give himself to the advancement of Christ's kingdom while he was also amazed at God's work within their midst. This man was excited about the preaching of the gospel. He was enthusiastic about the way in which many were being healed, and he was animated about how God had suddenly done this amazing work in Samaria. And so by all outward appearances, Simon the magician seems to be another glorious monument to the grace and mercy of Jesus. 
He is serving alongside Philip. He is, he is uh, emotionally moved by the preaching of the gospel, and there is tangible evidence to the fact that there has been some sort of repentance and renewal. There was what seemed to be a genuine joy in Simon for the work of Jesus among them. And again, so by all outward appearances, Simon the magician seems to be the real deal. Now at this point, I want to be clear. I want to emphasize that the church was right to take Simon at his word. Hearing his believable profession of faith and seeing that his life was aligned with that profession, at least according to what could be seen, they were right to welcome Simon into their fellowship and to apply that covenant sign that marks one's entrance into the church community. Philip and anyone else serving with Philip had to rely upon their eyes. They couldn't read Simon's heart. And so he and whoever was with him had to render judgment in this matter. And so they charitably listened to Simon's profession of faith, and they saw what they seemed, what seemed to be a life conforming itself to the good news of Jesus Christ. They were right to welcome Simon into their fellowship. Up until that day in which my friend was overcome with that overwhelming pain, there was really almost no reason for anyone to suspect that something was terribly wrong. Just as he was the picture of perfect health, Simon here seems to be a picture of perfect spiritual health. He looks like a picture of what repentance and new life looked like. There was no reason for anyone to suspect that something was terribly wrong. At the time of the Revolutionary War, there was a man by the name of Enoch Crosby. And he was born in Connecticut, and he uh, took on the trade of a shoemaker. Because of the war, that man chose to enlist in the American army in the hope of gaining the freedom for the colonies. Well, Enoch became a counterintelligence officer. He became the first American spy. He was really, really good at his job. Mr. Crosby is remembered by history for the rem remarkable success that he had for the Continental Army. He very often went behind enemy lines. He looked like a British soldier. He talked like a British soldier. He really embodied what it was to be a British soldier. Enoch was so convincing that records actually show that he fooled even his own parents as to his real identity. They believed him to be a British soldier. He was so very successful in playing the part. And that is what Simon is doing at this point in our text. You see, it is possible to so play the part that you actually fool everyone else. At this point in our text, that seems to be what Simon the magician has done. He has clearly fooled Philip. He has fooled many others, and he may have even fooled himself. And at this point, I want to be clear. This does not mean, then, that we should now live with suspicion regarding everyone who gives a credible profession of faith. Again, Simon, I'm sorry, the church, rather, was right to hear Simon's credible profession of faith, to consider his life, and then to bring him into the fellowship by way of baptism. So it does not mean that we should look with suspicion upon one another when hearing a credible profession of faith. So what does this mean? 
Well, as we go on to see here, Simon's hypocrisy or Simon's spiritual disease, if you will, it was not asymptomatic. It had symptoms. Just as a physical disease is diagnosed by recognizing certain symptoms, so too is this spiritual disease. My friend's cancer was diagnosed when that inward reality of cancer began to be revealed by certain outward symptoms. And that's what we see here with Simon. So how was Simon's identity revealed by these symptoms? Well, let's go on second to consider now the inward reality. The inward reality. Brothers and sisters, the bad news is there have always been and there will be hypocrites within the church. You don't need to look any further than Judas among the twelve for an example. The good news is, is that God's word here addresses that problem of hypocrisy within the church with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here in God's word, we see how Peter diagnoses this spiritual problem in order to provide Simon with the only appropriate treatment, which is the grace and mercy of Jesus. And so at this point, we need to consider the symptoms of Simon's hypocrisy. When my friend was first diagnosed with cancer, it was because of that obvious and unignorable pain. But after his diagnosis, in hindsight, my friend and his family were able to identify other earlier symptoms that were just far more subtle. And the same thing is true of Simon. Let's begin with his subtle symptoms and then work our way toward that more obvious sign. When we meet this man named Simon, God's word tells us that he previously practiced magic and that he amazed everyone in Samaria. Now, if this was all that the text said, we could not draw much from it. But then the text also says this. It tells us that he himself said that he was somebody great. Simon was a man that made sure that others recognized his greatness. He spoke to others of all of the significant things that he said and did. And so Simon, it seems, was quite happy with his status and his sense of significance among the people. Notice next how the text actually tells us twice that they all paid attention to him. Twice the text tells us of how Simon was constantly showered with the appreciation of the people. One of those actually says, even from the least to the greatest. Now again, each of these things, taken alone, might well go unnoticed. Individually, each of these would hardly stand out as a symptom of a spiritual disease. But then the text gets to what is obvious. Then the text tells us that Simon had a moment in which his words and his actions revealed what was in his heart. Just like that day in which my friend's pain revealed that there was a greater problem within, so do Simon's words and action reveal now this hidden spiritual disease. Verse 18 reads, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is inside comes outside by way of our words. For a while, Simon's life seemed to align with his profession of faith, but now his words and his actions have revealed who he really is. Simon, you see, has only been playing the part. And until these words were uttered, he had fooled everyone else, perhaps even himself. We might even imagine Simon looking upon these words that he has just uttered and saying something like, well, what's wrong with my words? Can't you see that I only really want the Holy Spirit so that I can be a blessing to others? So what do his words really reveal? Well, first of all, Simon's words reveal that he does not understand the grace of God. As we have seen so abundantly here in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is a gracious gift that is freely bestowed by God's sovereign grace. And yet, somehow, Simon has come to conceive of the Holy Spirit as a crass commodity that can be bought or sold. And so misunderstanding the nature of God's grace, Simon also misunderstands the nature of who God is. It doesn't appear that he understands the gospel because he doesn't understand the grace of God. Second, Simon's words reveal that he sees Jesus as merely a means to an end. What does that mean, boys and girls? What does it mean, Jesus being a means to an end? Well, when you go to the airport, you print off your ticket because you will need that ticket in order to get through security and then to board the airplane. Once you are seated on your plane, that ticket suddenly becomes worthless. It was valuable before because you needed it to get through security and you needed it to board the plane, but once you're seated, that sheet of paper can now be discarded like any other scrap of paper. Well, here, Simon, it seems, treats Jesus as his ticket to get back the attention and the accolades that he so loved. These words reveal that Simon has twisted the grace of God into a selfish means of self-exaltation. Simon's words reveal that he has perverted the grace of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, into this self-serving scheme. Jesus is just a means to an end. Jesus is not the end in Simon's understanding. In John chapter 6, there are large crowds who are eagerly following after Jesus. Jesus has miraculously fed these crowds with food. And they are so eager to find Jesus again that the next day they get into boats and they cross the Sea of Galilee to see him. And when these crowds come around Jesus again, he confronts them with his words. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus said, you were treating me like a means to your own ends. You are using me to get what you want. And then Jesus revealed that he indeed is the end. He said, I am the bread of life. And he offered them to himself freely, saying, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the end. He's not a means to another end. But there, John's Gospel says that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Brothers and sisters, this is perhaps the most subtle form of all idolatry. With his lips, Simon professes faith in Jesus Christ. And then to all appearances, he even conformed his life accordingly. But then when it came right down to it, Simon's words ultimately reveal his heart. He is not looking to Jesus Christ as his Savior. Instead, Simon is looking to Christ as a means to fulfill his own selfish ends. Simon's words reveal that his heart is still enslaved to his own idolatry. His words reveal that he is not united to Jesus Christ. He still needs to come to Christ. In hindsight, my friend's family recognized that there were other symptoms of his cancer, but it wasn't until that one day when it all became so obvious. But notice here in our text, it's not actually that obvious to Simon. It's not all that obvious to Simon. It may not be all that obvious to each of us. What do our words reveal? What do our actions reveal? And do we need the help of others to see what our actions and our words are revealing? Here in our text, Simon is oblivious to what his words have just revealed. And as we're going to go on to see, it takes the strong self-sacrificial and loving words of another to show Simon what his words have just revealed. So let's consider finally the only cure. Peter's words to Simon are strong and straightforward. And I would venture to guess that if we could listen in on Simon's words, or Peter's words to Simon, I would guess that each of us in our modern sensibilities would be tempted to misjudge Peter's words. We might be tempted to say, Peter, that's not very loving. Peter, that's not very gracious or gentle. But brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And what we have recorded for us here are some of the most merciful and loving words ever recorded. And why is that? Well, it's because Peter understands that these words are absolutely necessary. He understands the nature of this situation. He understands what is going on in Simon's heart and soul. And he knows that this is no time to mince words. Just imagine what words you might use if you saw one of your children running toward a busy street. Instinctively, you would know that that moment demands strong and urgent words instead of gentle or sensitive words. 
Well, here, Peter understands the seriousness of this situation, and so he meets the seriousness of that situation with words that reflect the sobriety of what's really going on. Imagine my friend on that day in which he was taken to the ER. When the results were in, the doctor had an accurate diagnosis, but it was certainly a diagnosis that he did not want to deliver. Who wants to tell someone else, you have cancer? Well, what did the doctor do? He did what a good doctor does. He put himself aside. And he delivered that bad news, even though he knew it would be absolutely devastating. He didn't deliver a different diagnosis. He didn't say, you have the flu. No, he said, you have cancer. And he had to give that devastating news because he knew that only with that devastating news would my friend then take the treatment that was offered. Because he knew that in order to give my friend his life-saving treatment, he had to deliver the bad news. And so here in our text, like a skillful physician, Peter delivers his diagnosis with an appropriate level of concern. He says to Simon, may your silver perish with you. These are words of judgment. May your silver die with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God for money. Why is Peter saying it like this? Well, he understands what is at stake, and he understands that this is certainly no time to soft-pedal this problem. Simon's words have revealed that he is not united to Christ, that he does not understand the gospel. And so Peter says to him, your heart is not right before God. He goes on and he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. Many commentators believe that Peter is here pronouncing a formal statement of excommunication upon Simon. When he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, this matter is the gospel. This matter is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But notice quickly that Peter immediately follows that sobering diagnosis with the only cure. He says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Even though Simon's sinful heart has now been ex exposed, there is not a single moment of hesitation from Peter regarding the grace and mercy of Jesus. Peter knows that God is completely sovereign in salvation, but that doesn't stop him from calling Simon to this personal repentance. This doesn't stop uh, Peter from offering Simon the grace and mercy of Jesus. And so Peter urges him, pray. Pray that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You remember Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler went away sad at Christ's word. And his disciples watching that whole interaction were shocked and they asked Jesus then, who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
Peter understands that it is entirely possible that Jesus is going to forgive Simon's sins if he will only come to Christ. Because Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. If Simon would but come to Christ, his sins will certainly be forgiven because Jesus is the only cure. Simon's spiritual disease has now been accurately diagnosed and the appropriate treatment is prescribed. Come to Jesus Christ. When my friend was diagnosed and that treatment was prescribed, he had to take advantage of it. Boys and girls, hear this. It would be insufficient for my friend to simply know that a treatment for cancer exists. And it would also be insufficient for my friend to believe that that treatment is powerful enough to deliver someone from cancer. The only way for my friend to be a beneficiary of that treatment is to trust in it and to engage in it. Earlier, our text told us that Simon believed. But as that text, this text teaches us and many others, there is a type of belief that stops short of a true saving faith. You see, true saving faith involves both knowledge and trust. It is insufficient to just know things about Jesus. It is insufficient to just know that Jesus can powerfully save you from your sins. You must actually trust in him. You must actually believe upon Jesus Christ. You must actually cast yourself upon Jesus Christ. You see, it seems that Simon acknowledged certain truths regarding Jesus, but he lacked that personal saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it can be difficult to, be, to distinguish between the genuine believer who is simply struggling with sin and that unbeliever who is hiding behind the outward appearance of what is only an empty profession of faith. We can't read hearts. And so it's very difficult often to distinguish between these two, but the glorious good news is this. It doesn't matter because the call is the same. Come to Jesus Christ. He is the only cure. In the words of institution that we read, we'll hear them read this evening as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are called to examine ourselves. Self-examination is a Christian discipline. It's something that is given to us by God. But even there, in the words of institution, 1 Corinthians 11, we should note that that call to self-examination is anticipating, hoping for a positive answer. We are called to examine ourselves and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Self-examination is intended to bring us before God in repentance completely distrusting of ourselves and any good works so that we can rest in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only cure. And if we are not careful, we could miss the gracious intention of Jesus in setting before us today this negative example of Simon the Magician. 
Here is this man who by all outward appearances played the part. But when his words let loose that inward reality, it became apparent that this man's profession of faith was just that. It was just a profession and not a reflection of a heart that was trusting in Christ. And so consider Simon today. For Peter graciously called upon him to repent and to pray. What happened to Simon? God's word doesn't tell us, and I believe it leaves it ambiguous for a reason. Simon responds to Peter. Peter says, pray, repent. And Simon responds to Peter saying, you pray for me. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, perhaps Simon is requesting the prayers of others, and that would be a wonderful thing. That is a great thing. But it seems much more likely here that Simon is outsourcing his personal spiritual responsibility. You pray for me. Why is it that hearing the call to repent, Simon doesn't respond in, for, in repentance and in prayer. Why is it? Well, Peter tells us. He says to Simon, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What has happened to Simon? Again, God's word doesn't tell us. Early church historians and early church theologians record that Simon became Peter's chief antagonist against the gospel. Church history seems to say that Simon did not repent at this gracious call from Peter. And instead, the bitter embarrassment that Simon's sin brought about took root such that this man never repented. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear that. Bitterness is a difficult root that grows deep quickly. Think about Simon. Think about how humiliating it would be to be publicly revealed as a hypocrite. Think of how hard the flesh would pull against the call to repent and to pray. That is why his bitterness grows deep so quickly. Well, here we have God's word coming to us in the most gracious way so that we might see any symptoms that might, that might possibly reveal that our inward reality does not align with our outward appearance or our profession of faith so that we will draw near to Jesus today, so that we will come to him as the only cure, so that we will trust in him alone. Think about my friend just one more time. It was a very painful discovery when his inward reality was revealed. It was so painful to learn that he was not healthy as it seemed, but instead he was very, very sick. But you see, God was so gracious in providing that pain. 
God was gracious because he had designed that painful diagnosis to bring Stephen to humble himself and cast himself upon that appropriate treatment. Sometimes people are tempted to ignore a painful diagnosis, hoping that if they simply ignore it, that it will all somehow just go away. That somehow it won't progress and grow, but anytime that happens, cancer grows and spreads until it is too late. But brothers and sisters, God brings us his word today so that we will not ignore symptoms of spiritual disease. Instead, that we would tremble before the warning of God's word letting it drive us by faith to Jesus Christ, who is the only cure. Cast yourself entirely upon Jesus Christ. Distrust yourself entirely. Trust in Christ, and he will save you. Let us pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see and to understand that your word here has gracious designs to bring us to Jesus Christ. Lord, whether believing for the first time or believing again, Lord, may it be that each of us today might distrust entirely of ourselves and entirely upon Jesus Christ, who alone is Savior. Lord, guard any of us against ignoring symptoms, hoping that they will just go away if ignored. But instead, let us listen to you and to this word. Lord, we ask that you would grant to us repentance. We pray for that forgiveness that is needed in each of our lives. Lord God, will you please heal us, save us as your people. Lord, cause us not to trust in professions of faith or outward symbols like baptism and the Lord's Supper, although these are good gifts from you. But Lord, teach us to use all of these things appropriately to bring us to Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, hearing of Simon. It's so easy to see how our hearts want to make you into a means to our own selfish end. We see it in us. And so we cast ourselves entirely upon you to save us. Forgive us our sins, we pray the glory and praise of your name.